0: The Guardian.
1: Welcome to Science Weekly. I'm Hannah Devlin. Even before it became clear that COVID-19 was going to become a global pandemic, back in January when the new virus had only just been identified, scientists in labs around the world were already turning to the question of how to develop a vaccine. And as the scale of the crisis has become clear, these efforts have accelerated and governments around the world have collectively pledged billions of pounds in support of these efforts. But with the potential for a significant proportion of the global population needing protection from the virus, we wondered, do we need more than one vaccine?
0: At this moment, we don't know which of these approaches is going to work. And there's also the degree of how well they work. Some might make much stronger immune responses than others and perhaps then give better protection.
1: To dive into this question, I spoke to Andrew Pollard, Professor of Pediatric Infection and Immunity.
0: And I'm Director of the Oxford Vaccine Group at the University of Oxford.
1: Andrew's also leading the COVID-19 vaccine trial there. I'm Hannah Devlin, and this is Science Weekly. Andrew, a lot is resting on us finding a vaccine. People talk about a vaccine as the only sure exit route from the pandemic, and there are dozens of teams around the world working on this effort at breakneck speed. Could you just tell me a bit about the different approaches that teams are taking and whether they work in the same way that traditional vaccines work or whether they're looking at something more high tech?
0: There are over a hundred different products in development taking a huge variety of different approaches, including some of the very traditional approaches to make vaccines, as well as uh, novel approaches which have not so far reached uh, licensure for any other type of vaccine. And I think that brings us to a very exciting moment where we have the potential not only, I hope, to be able to prevent coronavirus, but also to learn a huge amount about the, the biology of immune responses to different types of vaccines which will put us in a much stronger position in the future if we ever uh, face this situation again.
1: So people are probably familiar with the way traditional vaccines work, attenuated vaccines where you take the disease and you make a weaker version of it so that you can infect someone um, but it it doesn't make them sick but it allows their immune system to be trained to recognise the infection if they um, encounter it again in real life. Are some of the teams taking this traditional approach or are they looking at different ways that you can train the immune system to recognise coronavirus?
0: Well, there are a number of traditional approaches to to vaccines and you're absolutely right. that One of the original approaches for doing that is to weaken a virus or a bacterium so that it can be used as a vaccine without causing disease, but still causing a really mild infection to allow an immune response. That is certainly a possibility with coronaviruses, but there's a lot of work needed to do to develop a a safe weakened strain of coronavirus because we certainly wouldn't want to have one that wasn't weakened enough. And so although some people are working on those approaches, that's not the approach that we're taking or in fact the majority of developers have taken. There are a number of different traditional approaches, which are usually uh, taking purified components of the virus, proteins the virus makes, and turning those into vaccines. But there are also other approaches, uh, such as taking bits of genetic material from the virus and using that to generate proteins, actually in the human body, to then make an immune response against that component of the virus. The particular approach we're taking here in Oxford is to take a small bit of the genetic code of COVID-19 virus. And that is the bit of the genetic code that makes spike protein, a protein that decorates the surface of the virus when it's being transmitted between people during infection. And to put that bit of the genetic code into another virus called an adenovirus, which causes the common cold. And when that virus is then injected as a vaccine, it expresses the protein from coronavirus, the spike protein, so we can make an immune response against spike protein and hopefully, if the vaccine works, be protected against coronavirus. So this adenovirus that we're using as the shuttle that takes the coronavirus genetic code into the vaccine has been weakened so much that it is unable to make new viruses to replicate in the human body and so when it's injected as a vaccine it goes inside the cells where you've injected it in the muscle and expresses the protein and then that's it. It doesn't do anything else after that. So it is purely to help transport spike protein successfully into cells in the human body so that we can then make an immune response against the virus.
1: You mentioned before that um, you could do the weakened version of coronavirus, but that might take quite a while because you'd have to be very sure that it's safe. Have a lot of the approaches had that at the kind of heart of the strategy, things that they can do quickly? So for example, your vaccine, you're using something as the shuttle that you've already tested out and you already know is harmless. And then you're just kind of... Adding on a little flag to it that kind of signals coronavirus to the body, was that the reason why you went for that approach and why that 's kind of shaped the approach of a lot of the teams that are working on this
0: well I think we 're in a really good position in some ways with a pandemic caused by coronavirus because we 've had two previous epidemics of coronaviruses eighteen years ago with SARS coronavirus one and then more recently with MERS coronavirus. And because those two epidemics happened, which fortunately fizzled out on their own using public health measures, it was possible for lots of work to go on on development of coronavirus vaccines. And so most of the development, which is moving quickly in the field at the moment, is building on that experience from those previous outbreaks. Here in Oxford, my colleague Sarah Gilbert was already working on a vaccine for MERS coronavirus, And so we already knew how to make a vaccine against coronaviruses. And when this new pandemic came, uh, as soon as the genetic code of the virus was available, she was able to switch uh, the spike protein of the MERS virus for the spike protein of this new coronavirus and to start making the vaccine that we're now testing in human trials.
1: Can you tell me what some of the potential pitfalls for a vaccine are? What are some of the points at which they could fail? So there's obviously the sort of safety trials that you have first. And if someone had some terrible side effect, then that would rule that out. But how can a vaccine that looks really promising and that theoretically ought to work, how can it end up not working or not be even practical, perhaps, to produce?
0: Assuming we've got to the stage where human trials have started. And of course, many vaccines never even get into human trials because there are concerns about whether they produce the right immune responses or are safe in the studies that happen uh, before we get to humans. Once we get into human trials, then the first question is, is it safe? And safety very much means are there in the short term, when you're vaccinating a relatively small number of people in, in the tens or hundreds, um, are there some major problems with the local reactions that you get, so sore arms and so on, are, are they intolerable? Are there lots of people feeling very unwell after they've been vaccinated that suggests that there's quite a lot of reaction to some components of the vaccine? So that those are um, some of the holdups. I think usually that is not a big issue by the time you get into human trials, because we largely are working with products which are very well characterized previously, so we know what to expect. The second problem in human trials might be that you just don't generate the immune response. And although we can get a lot of information from the studies that happen before you get into humans, and some of those studies will be undertaken in animal models, animals are not humans. And so the human immune response can be different. So if you have a vaccine in humans that just doesn't make a good response, it's very unlikely that anyone would pursue development of it. The next stage is being able to prove the vaccine works and if you have your trials in a population where there's lots of virus being transmitted you can answer that question quite quickly but as has happened with some of the other vaccines in outbreaks for example some of the ebola vaccines that they were developed just a little bit too late to get into the trials and because of that even though they're very likely to be protective vaccines uh, they were not tested in the field. And so it's been very difficult to progress their development. And in fact, only one Ebola vaccine has ended up being licensed, which was tested at the tail end of the West African Ebola outbreak. The next really big hurdle is the upscaling of manufacturing, which it can be relatively easy to make vaccines for a small scale, for a few hundred doses. But when you get to the point of trying to make enough uh, tens, hundreds of millions or even billions of people, the technical challenges to upscale that manufacturing into very large bioreactors um, is uh, complicated. And that sometimes can be the real challenge for being able to move uh, forwards to deployment at a population level.
1: You just touched on this, I think, but I wanted to know a bit more about doing trials during a pandemic. And it feels as though you've described a bit of a Catch-22 situation. So if If for example, the lockdown, the restrictions we've currently got in the UK work really well and we get down to really low levels of transmission in the community, could it become really difficult to carry out the next phase of trials for your vaccine? Um, You get into a situation where there's just not enough of it around to test whether your vaccine works or not.
0: To some extent that's right, except it's much more to do with how long it takes. The virus from what we've seen so far is unlikely to disappear. And we're much more in a situation where if there is less transmission, it will take much longer to be able to demonstrate the vaccine works. But eventually, uh, the the virus will affect people in the trials and we'll be able to make an assessment of whether or not it works. But it makes that very unpredictable. I I can't put a date on when we will know whether the vaccine works.
1: I've heard people talking about this idea of challenge trials, the idea that you could vaccinate people and then actually try and give them, intentionally infect them with coronavirus. And I think there's even some kind of campaign where lots of people have signed up saying they'd be willing to put themselves forward as a volunteer for this kind of trial. Um, Often people who are young and healthy and feel that they could take the risk. What, What do people in the community think about that idea?
0: Well, challenge studies are really mainstream as an approach for developing new vaccines. And the reason for that is that you can very quickly get an evaluation of whether a vaccine that you've just developed could protect against a disease. And uh, that's been done many times for malaria vaccines, typhoid vaccines, influenza vaccines, a, a huge long list. Now that has advantages where you can ensure the safety of the volunteers, where you know that if you challenge them, either that they're going to get a mild disease or that you have a rescue therapy such as antibiotics, if it's a bacterial challenge uh, that will allow them to fully recover. This is a very different situation today with coronavirus in that if we were to deliberately infect people with the virus, we wouldn't know whether that dose we were giving was high enough to put them in intensive care. That would be an extreme risk for the trial and for the individual um, to do that. So I think at the moment, because we don't have a rescue therapy, we have to approach challenge studies extremely cautiously. But I don't think they should be ruled out because it could be one of the ways in which we can get that answer more quickly. But it really has to have extremely careful thought about how we ensure the safety of the volunteers in those trials.
1: Are there any teams that are actively looking at pursuing that approach? It seems like very risky compared to what you would normally kind of undergo in a clinical trial.
0: There's huge interest in trying to work out how this could be undertaken safely to get an answer more quickly. And I think if there was a model which had been set up for human challenge studies, uh, where we knew a dose of the challenge virus, the coronavirus, uh, which caused mild infection and no severe disease, then I think all, all vaccine developers would be very interested in working with that model to get an early readout about whether the vaccine's likely to be protective um, in real life. One of the difficulties with that is if you have such a low dose of virus that you either have mild disease or maybe the asymptomatic infection, which we know occurs with coronavirus, and you show the vaccine can prevent a very mild infection, you still haven't addressed the critical question for the world, which is whether a vaccine can prevent severe disease, hospitalisation, intensive care admission and death.
1: I wondered as well from what you've described about the possible sticking points for vaccines, whether it might be the case that some vaccines work better for some people than others, maybe some are better at getting an immune response in older people or people with underlying immune conditions and whether there might be kind of production issues, manufacturing issues for vaccines that um, make them more suitable for one country rather than another. Is that something that kind of adds to this idea that we need more than one approach?
0: I think this is a really important point that um, vaccines that perform well in some segments of the population might not necessarily be so good in other groups. And that's very much the case for some of the vaccines that we already use. And it's particularly a problem uh, of making good immune responses in older adults. And particularly by that, I mean people over 70 or 75 years of age, where part of immune system aging is that most conventional vaccines don't seem to be able to drive the immune system to make good responses very effectively. And so I think until we've started to accumulate data in older adults, we don't really know for any of the products how well they're going to perform um, in those age groups. Uh, For younger adults uh, and for children, most vaccines do uh, induce quite good immune responses of the different technologies which are being tested at the moment. For some of them, you'll need more than one dose, um, but that still um, would be fine to overcome the relatively lower immune response that you get from some vaccines.
1: I'm interested in the sort of landscape of vaccine development here. And when we hear about reporting of this, it's often kind of described as a race. that You know, all these different teams around the world are racing against each other for a vaccine. Curious about whether that's kind of how you view it and whether you think it's good that we've got all these efforts going on, or are we just sort of diluting our efforts by having so many different approaches?
0: At this moment, we don't know which of these approaches is going to work. And there's also the degree of how well they work. Some might make much stronger immune responses than others and perhaps then give better protection. And so we really at this stage need to have many different programs running to find out which are going to be the front runners uh, to go forwards. So there's sort of a biological reason why we want to have more than one approach to find out whether we could actually identify some candidates which would be successful. For those of us working in this area, I really feel a sense of togetherness, that we're all actually in a race together against a virus rather than a competitive race against each other. The high proportion of vaccines are not successful, but we have a planet of over seven billion people. And those people, a large proportion of them are not yet immune to this pandemic virus. So if we only have one vaccine, The chances of being able to protect the whole world in the short term or even in the longer term is an enormous challenge. But if we have multiple players around the world who are able to develop vaccines which are both safe and can provide protection, then we would be in an amazingly strong position to get there much more quickly and get out of this pandemic situation.
1: Obviously, there's a lot of hope being placed on the idea we're going to come up with a vaccine as a way to finally unlock our societies. I'm wondering if we need to be a bit wary about relying on this idea we're going to get a vaccine too much and we need to maybe manage our expectations a little more. Are you feeling the pressure at the moment?
0: As far as personal pressure is concerned, my job is to make sure that we have properly conducted clinical trials so that If a vaccine does work, we can have confidence that the trials have been conducted in a way that shows that. Similarly, if it doesn't work, if it's not safe, I I want to be absolutely sure that I'm reporting that result correctly uh, so that we are in a position to regroup and think about what we've learned from the trials and to move on. I'm optimistic about the potential of a vaccine to be available in the future and to be protective but we have to do those clinical studies first in order to be absolutely certain of that.
1: Andrew, thanks so much for coming on our podcast.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Thanks again to Andrew. As always, do keep sending us your questions on the science behind the outbreak by filling in the form at theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions, all one word. The Guardian's open journalism connects us It brings us together when we need it the most. It arms us with facts, it searches for answers, and it helps us to imagine a better tomorrow. But today, we need your support more than ever. Your support will sustain us and make sure that our open journalism stays open during this crisis and beyond. Support The Guardian today. Visit gu.com forward slash support podcasts. Thank you and thanks for listening Stay safe and see you back here soon.
0: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.